0: Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Welcome to the second in a series of conversations on citizenship in a networked age. In the first conversation, I interviewed two of the report's authors, Andrew Briggs and Dominic Burbidge, to discuss some of the interesting and challenging issues raised by life in the new technological environment. Of course, they're not the only ones grappling with these questions, and with an eye to one particular part of the report, its discussion of community, platform and institution, I'm pleased to be joined by three thoughtful writers. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times. a a commenter on PBS's NewsHour and NPR's All Things Considered and NBC's Meet the Press. The author of several best-selling books, he also chairs an Aspen Institute initiative called Weave, The Social Fabric Project. Next, Yuval Levin directs AEI's program on social, cultural, and constitutional studies and is the founding editor of National Affairs. He's authored several books on the institutions of governance and he was a co-founder of The New Atlantis a journal of the social, cultural, and political impacts of technology. And one of his fellow co-founders of that journal is our third guest. Christine Rosen is a senior editor at Commentary Magazine, writing on American culture, including the impact of social media in our lives today. Before joining Commentary, she was managing editor of the Weekly Standard, and she's written two books on religion and American life. I'll add that Christine, Yuval, and I, and others are collaborating on our own study, of internet platform uh, companies, governance, and society. But in the meantime, it's a pleasure to get the conversation started with this Oxford report. Christine, Yuval, David, thanks for joining us and for reading the report. Briefly, just a note about this conversation. But for COVID-19, this conversation would have happened in an in-person event at AEI's headquarters in Washington. Of course, that's not possible these days due to COVID-19, so we pivoted and planned it as a podcast instead but we don't want to lose the benefit of audience questions and comments. So if this conversation spurs any thoughts of your own, please don't hesitate to send them my way by email. My email address is adam.white at AEI.org. That's adam.white at AEI.org. And whatever you send me, we'll collect it and hand it over to the authors of the report, and they'll answer some of your questions in the final episode. Let's just jump right in on the question of community. As as the report describes, and as we all know all too well, more and more parts of our lives, our personal lives, are intermediated by social media. Uh, Communities that we once had in person are now increasingly online, not just in this COVID era in which we're all socially distanced, but just in general. And these social media companies are changing the way we think about community itself. Um, David, how should we think about community in the networked age?
1: Yeah, I guess I'm of the belief that everything we think intuitively about the internet is turns out to be the opposite of the truth. And so I remember back in the early days, I thought we were going to have paperless offices. Uh, we do everything online and paper sales have skyrocketed since um, we have internet and everything went online. And I kind of still think that's true of community with one um, proviso. I'm more and more struck by the power of neighborhoods. You know, if you look at one neighborhood to the next You have radically different social mobility rates, radically different incarceration rates. People are still clumping physically, and they still have that sense of what around me that I see face to face is real. And everything else is less real. I I remember once, years ago, I was at a diner in in Long Island City in Queens, and there were two ladies who had big bouffant hairdos, and they had brightly painted nails, and they spoke in the thickest um, Queens accents. And I remember thinking, we're about three miles from the headquarters of NBC, CBS, and ABC, and nobody talks this way or dresses this way with the exception of Fran Drescher, whatever her name was. And so I'm still struck by the power of local community with one proviso. I do think the internet, especially for the younger generation, has made all hierarchy seem evil. Uh, and, uh, And whether it's in their own companies or, frankly, out on the streets of the protests over the last couple weeks, uh, hierarchy is bad and I think that is having a that whole series of consequences we can talk about.
0: Uh, I'm just curious David, do you think it's that technology hasn't changed local community yet or do you think there's something sort of sustainable in the in the long run in, in what you're seeing?
1: Yeah, well until social distancing, the conference business had um, was skyrocketing. It was a booming business and to be bluntly honest, if you want to see me give a speech go on YouTube there's speeches there and yet for me and every other public speaker, people still want to show up and be there in person. And so I, I, I think we've hit peak saturation of online and we'll of course we'll always be online, but I think the hunger for the real is magnified by social distancing and will be with us
2: forever.
0: Christine, you've written a lot on social media. What, what do you think of, of these questions of community and what it means to have community in, in, our, in our time?
2: I think the point that David raises is important and a useful distinction and actually perhaps one of our last hopes if we want to make sure that we maintain some distinction between the real and the unreal because what I've seen over the last, you know, say 10 years with social media use and these platforms in particular is that when we think of community, we think of belonging, we think sort of happy thoughts, but communities also do generally have barriers to entry. right? So if you live in a neighborhood, you have to have rented or purchased a place to live in that neighborhood. If you wanna join a, you know, a, a particular church or synagogue, you, there are certain barriers to entry there those are there for good reasons. Um, And I think this speaks to the point about hierarchy. What the platforms, um, the sort of alluring thing that they've held out to all of us is the only barrier to entry is is clicking a button on your computer. And I think as a result, what we're seeing, and particularly in the last few weeks with the the protests, is um, that there still need to be barriers, but now they are often tests of ideological or or political purity. And that means these communities are often much more about the um, emotional response they generate versus the responsibilities that, that they have to each other and to other communities. So I do have a concern about how that transition will continue and how it more broadly affects some of the questions that were raised in the Oxford report about democracy and governance.
0: For those who, who are gonna hear this long after we've recorded it, we're recording it in the immediate aftermath I guess it's still ongoing, uh, protests surrounding uh, the death of George Floyd at the hands of some uh, Minnesota police officers. Um, not the immediate first round of protests, but sort of uh, we're about two weeks in. Maybe, we'll, maybe later in the conversation, we'll circle back to that and, and the impact on of technology and the way we understand the, these events. Uh, I think it's safe to say that George Floyd, his, his tragic death uh, would have been received very differently um, 30 years ago, not just because we're a different country, but because we see these events through different technology. Um, but you've all, on the community question, how do you try to th- think through these issues?
3: Well, you know, I, I think the experience of the internet has has brought into focus the difference between the, what you might think of as the primary purposes of some of our communal institutions and their secondary purposes, which are community, right? People don't just come together to have community. People come together to, to do something, to educate kids or to help the poor or to just run a business. And in the process, having done that, we also experience this wonderful thing that we're together with other people. They, they shape us and we shape them. We learn from them. They learn from us. We become a community. And the internet says to us, well, you can do all these other things without coming together. Isn't that great? And so now look, you can, you can teach a class on the internet and you don't have to go anywhere and you don't have to be together. And what I realized having that experience in particular of trying to teach a class on the internet is that an enormous amount of what actually matters in teaching and learning is communal. And when you, ha- when, when you serve the primary purpose, and we're still you know, reading material and talking about it, if that's what a class is, then you know, we're still getting done what we should be getting done. But without the community aspect, without seeing students as a group talking to each other, Without running into somebody in the, in the hallway on the way to lunch and learning something about our life and then knowing something in a different way about what it is you're doing in the classroom, you don't have the same human experience. And we're being forced to confront the difference between the things we do together and the actual experience of community life, which is about being together together. Now, it does seem to me also, though, that we have probably reached the point where our complaints about the internet have officially gone overboard. It's nice to complain about the internet. I get it. I mean, we went through a period where we had these enormously high hopes that it would just transform everything for the better and let us do everything we want. Then we realized, actually, this thing has its own logic, and it's not just what we want, and there's a lot of problems here. I think we've over-internalized that lesson, and now we're at a point where we just don't even acknowledge the good things about the internet, which are enormous, including those social benefits that do allow us to stay in touch, to keep together, to, you know, in a, in a, in a period like the public health crisis we're living through, uh, to be able to continue to communicate and work together. So I think we have to have some balance about it, but one of the things it's, it's shown me is this distinction between community and the things we do in community. Um, and how we have to understand one is distinct from another.
0: The education example is interesting because you know I teach as well, and obviously i found the, the, the experience of teaching online very, very different. Uh, this semester I was teaching a class of about 35 students. Um, I think a lot of people came away from that experience disappointed, but not everybody. Some liked it quite a lot. And I think there's gonna be an interesting sort between people who decide they want that kind of education or they want to teach in that way and those who like it the old way. But in that way, it's a good example of the broader theme, right? that some people today are flourishing in the online environment. Uh, people, I mean, first of all, young people might not know that there is another environment, but people with sort of interests that aren't widely represented in their own local community are able to flourish finding people of, of like mind and like interests in, in far distant places. But it means that we could have sort of a sort no, not the big sort geographically that we've seen um, in our day-to-day life of people relocating to communities that are more like them, but people sorting into a more real-world, in-person community versus uh, dedicating more and more of their lives to, to online communities. Uh, do you think that there's any worry there that people will drop out of these day-to-day institutions? Because I agree with you all. Our careers as as writers, as as, as teachers have benefited immeasurably from the resources of the internet. The way we research, the way we exchange ideas with colleagues, the idea that we can call people colleagues who are on the opposite side of the country or or even further away. I mean, in so many ways, this has been a boon to our lives. But there is sort of interesting choices to be made in how we're going to spend that finite number of hours in the day between our online communities uh, and our our in-person communities.
2: One one point to consider in weighing the benefits and drawbacks of that is how some of the ways that we're habituated to behave online, and we all do spend a lot of time online, particularly if we have jobs that we can do online, which the pandemic threw into high relief in, in the last few months, is whether we become habituated to expect certain efficiencies in our interactions with other human beings that when you are in person, you just have to tolerate. So there's a level of toleration when we're all together. And I, for those of us who do teaching where it's a hands-on thing, it's something that you literally cannot do. You can try to teach through a camera, but it's, you're not going to be able to help your students as much. Anyone who does any sort of, you know, physical job can also say this. I think that there is something, I mean, we are evolved as a species to read each other's faces, to read our gestures, to look at our full physical behavior, which we're constantly emitting signals somewhere completely unaware of to others when we speak and when we act. Um, those are the things that I always worry about, even though I will happily embrace you've all the label of uh, co- still you know, overreacting to the Internet and, and pointing out all of its problems. <laughs> you're right, particularly in the last few months, I, I have a greater appreciation for it. But I do worry about the kinds of habits of mind and behavior that we expect online that don't translate into the real world and that make us impatient with each other, particularly when you're talking about extremely difficult and challenging issues that we need to resolve as a country.
3: You know, Adam, I think that the generational point that Christine makes there is enormously important. It it makes me think of of the argument made by the great philosopher of science, Hans Jonas, who says that we have a way of thinking about innovation as changing our lives. And so we think this could be a supplement to what we do, and it would make us better able to do what we do. But we also have to think of innovation as shaping the environment in which the next generation will enter the world. And that's very different because that's not a generation that's been shaped as we have but now can use this as a supplement to do something that we know we want to do but can do better thanks to technology. It's a generation whose entire experience of human life will be shaped by this new way of doing things. And we have to ask ourselves, what would it look like to enter the world knowing only this and to experience the reality of, of in this case, human community – only through the lens of uh, of a world transformed by the internet. I think that's just a very different reality than those of us for whom the internet is just a great additional tool when we've already been shaped by a pre-internet way of thinking about community. And it's created a, a, a kind of distance between the younger generation and the, the middle and older generations now that really shows itself in, in times like this. And that really shows itself when we find the rising generation entering the workforce with just a different set of attitudes, a different set of expectations, a different sense of what it even means to be in community.
0: Yeah, it, I can't remember who said that the past is a foreign country. Uh, so is the next generation. My oldest daughter is, is 15. And the, the, the gap between her understanding of, of her relationships between others and, and mine is enormous. David, in the last few years, you've taken on this project at the Aspen Institute, the WEAVE project where you really are working firsthand with and learning from grassroots organizations that build community on a face-to-face basis, how are they grappling with, or how, uh, grappling is not, not the right way to put it. How does, how do these technologies, social media and others, how does that affect their work? Because in some ways I suspect it makes their work a lot easier.
1: Yeah, it's a bulletin board. I was with this woman just before the pandemic hit named Keisha, I am her last name now, uh, Who runs something called Sisters of Watts. Uh, and I just come from Facebook and I was interviewing people at, at Facebook and I came down to Watson in uh, South Central LA and she does all her organizing Facebook and she just was like a walking advertisement for Facebook. I love Facebook. It's the greatest thing ever. Meanwhile, you know, everyone else I know is dumping all over Facebook. And so I think they do find that, but I, I think they tend to be um, online skeptics and I'm running through my head of all the weavers are people like there's a guy named Pancho Aguilas in Houston, who works with undocumented workers who've fallen and been paralyzed in construction accidents, and he gives them wheelchairs and catheters and diapers and everything they need to lead dignified lives. And then he turns them into social workers. So you'll be in a neighborhood, and poncho and sixty Latino guys in wheelchairs will wheel into your neighborhood to do something for your neighborhood. Uh, and they are all—I would say—they're extremely high, high touch. And the one thing they have in common is just geniuses at relationship. Uh, there's a guy named Jimmy Durrell in Waco, Texas, who has a tr- thing called Church Under the Bridge for homeless people. He brought his church to the homeless under a highway. And I was sitting with an elderly black woman who had run the s- schools at a diner in Waco. And she was the most daunting human being I've ever met. She was like a strict drill sergeant. I get my kids on uh, to school on time and you know, I'm, I give them order. And Jimmy Durrell walks into the diner, sees this woman named Mrs. Dorsey, shakes her by the shoulders way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old and just says, I love you, I love you, I love you, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best, and she breaks out in a big smile. And that really is the kind of contact they rely on. And I find a lot of them in, during the pandemic are really struggling. And for the extroverts among us, there is no substitute. And I would say for weavers, weavers are extroverts uh, by and large. And they are the people in every neighborhood who are building this thing, community. And as you all says, it's the community is a group project, and so it's the thing we do together. It's also a group story. I used to be super pessimistic, and Christine's written a lot about this a lot. But like Gene you has been writing about how the young, the young, this younger generation is corrupted by screen time, and I think the research recently shows that it's less the screen time itself than what's perpetrated through the screens. And so I, I've become a, a little less skeptical of screen time itself, and the medium maybe not the message, maybe the message is the message.
2: Well, and and I I think that's an important distinction and one that as we try to think about better ways to build community hybrid versions that are both online and and in the real world, the word engagement always comes up. When people, if you talk to people actually organize on the ground, they'll talk about needing to engage people in the issue and, and whatnot. But engagement has a very different meaning for internet platforms. All engagement is good, whether it's um, violent, (laughs) racist, happy, sad. It's it's about emotional volatility is is the engagement they're looking for. So I think when the way to square the circle a little bit in coming to terms with building communities that rely on some sort of online presence, um, but don't lose the the I would think better understanding of engagement. That's what concerns me when I look at groups that rely too heavily on platforms to to recruit, because to maintain people, you need the old-fashioned version of engagement, and that is generally hands-on, or at least it's very one-on-one and individualistic, and that part of community, I think we, for the younger generation, should emphasize more. Yuval,
0: a moment ago, when you are talking about the way in which younger people are shaped, by technology without having already been shaped by other institutions. I suppose uh, that, that reminds me of the second theme we wanted to touch on from this report, that of institutions. And you've written, you know, your, your latest book a time to build is on the, the question of institutions. Uh, how should we think about technology's impact on institutions themselves, whether they are the institutions of governance or the, the, the formal, um, but, but, but somewhat less formal institutions of private life?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing we've seen, particularly in the era of social media, is that there's a tendency for these technologies to pull people out of institutional frameworks and to put them on platforms, and we call them platforms, um, where they basically stand on them as a stage and perform and, and sort of build their own brand rather than work through from within an institution, so that we've, we've tended to think of institutions now more as things to stand on than as things to live in. Um, And at the same time, we've seen the question of whether the internet platforms themselves are institutions arise in some very complicated ways. They tend to deny it because they don't want responsibility for what happens within the communities that they build. And you can see why, because taking responsibility for that would be an immense challenge. And so they want to be understood simply as platforms, as venues, as an environment where other things happen. But I think there's no question that the nature of that environment, the structure of the interaction that they create by the design of the platform, in turn shapes the community and and creates a kind of unavoidably institutional structure um, in which people live. And so I, I think we've got to find ways of thinking about these internet spaces, these virtual spaces, as in a sense, institutional spaces. There needs to be a new vocabulary of sociology for this, and it's starting to emerge, but very gradually, I do think central to it and connected to what we've been discussing here is the distinction, Josh Mitchell at Georgetown does a good job with this uh, in a couple of recent essays, the distinction between the internet as a supplement to our social life and the internet as a substitute for our social life. And thinking about the difference, about whether we're using these platforms as ways of enabling more traditional forms of social engagement, or as ways of making social engagement unnecessary or imagining that it's unnecessary, um, I think will make a big difference in terms of how this ends up shaping the way that our society handles these new platforms.
0: Just a moment ago, you mentioned the new new sociology
3: of of these institutions or institutions in in these times. Can you just spell out a little bit more what you meant by that? Well, I think we have to understand these as places where human beings interact with each other. These are social spaces. And so, yes, they're virtual spaces, but they're still places with... Sets of social rules of engagement with incentives that confront us and therefore shape and change our habits and attitudes. I I think it's a it's an enormous challenge and an opportunity also for a rising generation of sociologists to think about what it looks like when human beings engage with one another in these kinds of spaces that are unusually designable. You know, we can change the rules. You can change the nature of the platform. You can change the algorithm in ways that have tremendous influence on what people are exposed to and how they engage with each other. And yet at the same time, they're ultimately venues for human contact and human communication. They're shaped by the sociality of the human person. I I think we've only begun to get our arms around what this means for community and for society. You know, in the Oxford report, they borrow a definition from Dana Boyd, called
0: networked publics. And and they write, network publics are publics that are restructured by network technologies. As such, they are simultaneously space constructed through network technologies and the imagined collective that emerges as a result of the intersection of people, technology, and practice. And reading that, the word collective, I think, of, of community, but that focus on construction and structuring is it it gets to this question of institutions because while in many ways the internet always has been sort of a a flourishing uh, emergent order where things sort of build out almost on their own, almost as though an invisible hand um, much of it isn't through an invisible hand. It's a, it's a very visible hand of of the people who are engineering uh, the websites, building them up and, and whether intention whether they intend to or not um, the infrastructure that they build in this space it is it, it's institution building. It is constructing a framework through which others are going to conduct their lives. Um, Christine, David, what do you think about this question of of, of social media, or internet platforms, and institution?
2: one thing on the design point i think uh, we downplay the significance of the fact that an engineer at facebook decided to put a like button that choice right there transformed how everyone uses that platform forever similarly with with you know platforms like instagram the creation of filters the creation of of you know various tools that you can use to target followers or to or to be sponsored by corporations in order to perform your life for money these are all design choices that could have gone another way their design choices that could be reimagined. I don't think it's unusual that the the people who founded Instagram, which Facebook then bought, eventually left. Like They left the company because they didn't like the direction that that was going. So I, I think it's a really crucial point. And it is this younger generation that does give me hope because they grow up using these platforms and they have every incentive to be critical of how the experience on those platforms makes them feel and more and more of them are going to vote with their feet if they don't like a platform they're also going to be the ones who then i hope grow up to design better platforms having come of age with an experience that maybe wasn't ideal for their community bonding for their personal sense of self-esteem for for any number of things so there is i think some reason reason for optimism in the design choices but that's gonna be something that would be very difficult to regulate, for example. That's gonna be something that I think where the market speaks and where people will vote with their feet.
1: A couple of opposite thoughts come into my mind. The first is, I go back to my hierarchy point. When you go to Facebook and you walk through the building, it's just one gigantic, maybe mile long room with a bunch of workstations, with no under, it's completely undifferentiated structure. And if you go to the old building of the New York Times, there was like an executive floor with nice offices and then there were various floors and the, the hierarchy was manifest and you saw it. At Facebook, it's you don't see it. You just see a bunch of random neighborhoods, each with its own bar, but with workstations going on. It's the largest room in California. And, and then I my mind jumps to the Hong Kong protests, which I happen to be at. And then that too, it looked like there was no structure at all. It was just random network. But then even the human, mind detests that kind of random network. And so you create structures that are invisible, and some of them are the ones Christine mentioned, emotional structures of belonging, or ideological structures of belonging, or covert structures of belonging, which actually exist at Facebook. <laughs> uh, there's covert power structures there. And so those two things seem to be intention. tension, but both the true network, and I personally am pessimistic that a lot of social movements these days are gonna get much done because they're unwilling to accept that they're leaders. They're good at swarms. They're not good at priority and messaging and and leaders. And so you can change public opinion, but actually doing change requires hierarchy, I think. And so I think they're weak on that. On the other hand, there's the fierce attention to uh, these implicit structures that everybody is sort of aware of, but can't quite see and can't quite figure out. And I think that stirs up maybe a lot of distrust and, and fear. Because it's also hidden.
0: You know, with with respect to the design choices that Christine referred to earlier, I'm aware of those, and and the, you know, our friends at the New Atlantis have written a lot on this over the years, both about about data and about algorithms and so on. But for me, the ones I'm I'm more sort of interested in aren't those deliberate choices, right? It's the subconscious choices made by people who are designing. These institutions. Uh, as we were preparing for this conversation, I, I circulated the quote by by Keynes. He was talking about the impact of economic theory, and he said, "Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist." And I wonder how much of our own lives are shaped by the by either the witting or unwitting choices and preferences and worldview or expectations of engineers engineers in, in Silicon Valley. In my previous job at the Hoover Institution, I was out there quite a lot and I always enjoyed meeting with folks and, and visiting Facebook and so on. I thought it was interesting, but I thought these people just by way of their where they're located, how much younger they are than I am and their life experiences, they have a very particular slice of American or, or human experience, but their expectations are sort of coded into these frameworks whether they know it or not. And then that might affect us in ways that we know it or don't. So that if this does function as an institution, the way you've all rights about institutions and the ways that they can shape us, they will shape us in, in certain ways, sort of with the echoes of of the life experience of Silicon Valley
3: engineers. Maybe I'm... I think there's a way that they they implicitly contain some of these assumptions. It's unavoidable. You know, there's there's a kind of familiar analogy in classical philosophy between the city and the and the soul and in the republic socrates says th- this isn't th- this is implicit the city looks like the soul because we act on w- how our mind perceives the world without articulating to ourselves what that actually is and there's no way around that happening and i do think that the internet looks like what some a, a certain kind of engineer thinks the world looks like And so you've got certain kinds of confusions between engagement and expression, I think, is foremost when it comes to how the Internet interacts with our social and political lives. But all sorts of implicit ideas, some of them right and great, I'm sure, some of them wrong and terrible, just end up being kind of imprinted in the ways in which we interact with each other. And then they become real in the world over time because they structure our interactions. And so I think there's just no way around that being true, that we are all living in the world created by an engineer's assumption about what the world is already like.
0: You know, David, of all the things you've written over the years, some of my very favorite favorites were the essays you wrote uh, years ago at the Weekly Standard on, um, I wouldn't say uh, American greatness. It's a little different now. What was a national greatness conservatism. But I remember the essays about the reading room at the Library of Congress. And you're saying that when you're in this room, reading, thinking, writing, it, the, the room itself shapes the way in which you, you you go forward with that work, in a way, Facebook is sort of the, the reading room for us all now. Those of us <laughs> who are on Facebook, though, so it it really shapes it shapes the, the the work of of thinking just by its sort of its its aesthetic and the experience we have while we're in that room. Yeah,
1: though in the Library of Congress they were very explicit about what they were doing. They mm-hmm. like if you look at the top of the dome, it has all the great civilizations and what they're responsible for. Yeah. And I can't even remember them now. But we were—we gave ourselves responsibility for science. We're really good at science. Yeah. And then in the sides, they have the nine virtues. And the it's like the Catholic liturgy, but for American nationalism, it's like six sins, the nine virtues, the eight cheeses. They have everything all organized. And so it, it really—it's um, a message of who we are as Americans. For the um, the Silicon Valley folks, as much as I love them, I'm not sure they're self-aware. I mean. It, I interview a lot of people at Facebook from time to time, and I always think the people running our social networks don't understand what a social network it is. Like, that's not, they're good at being with their laptop. And, and so I, I, I think we're structured even, imagine growing up with the current vocabulary of emojis. The fact that there are emojis for certain emotions, but not other emotions, makes you have those emotions, or at least label those emotions, create the concept of that emotion them. and not the emotion that's been left off. I don't think there's an envy emoji.
2: <laughs> there's not. We need right. an emoji for secondhand embarrassment. This is the one I've long been arguing for, but no one's listening. <laughs> uh,
0: you know, sp- speaking of the people who helped us to design these things, as we record this, it's not just the, the the middle of the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, but the related debates over the role that social media companies should or shouldn't play in editing the content that appears online. Something that one of you said earlier, I think something David said reminded me of, of the recent interviews we've seen with Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and elsewhere, where they really, between Facebook and Twitter, they're both grappling for what balance to strike in terms of either taking down content or marking up content, as Twitter did, with a couple of President Trump's recent tweets. And it gets to this question about whether they see themselves as actively shaping the experience or not, whether they're leading a community or not. I remember a few years ago, our friend Jonathan Last, then of the Weekly Standard, now of the Bulwark, came forward with a pretty contrarian take, I think, for the time among conservatives, which was, yes, Twitter and Facebook ought to do more to edit what appears on their websites, because as conservatives, we should believe in community standards. And if these are communities, we ought to try to improve them as much as we can. That's a very roundabout way of of asking whether any of you have thoughts on this debate that's going on about Facebook and Twitter and the extent to which they should or shouldn't manage the content.
2: Christine? Well, I'll give the cynical view, as that is, seems to be my uh, purview today. I don't think that the tortured musings of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack at Twitter are really about concern for the human community so much as they are a fear of what I think would affect social media platforms, which is global anhedonia with how these things <laughs> operate, right? So if people are no longer deriving pleasure or anger or fear, any of these very powerful emotions that we get when we log on and see it, you know, someone rage tweeting and that someone happens to be the president. The platforms are not gonna do well if they start regulating in that way. I'm a pretty hardcore First Amendment person. These are private companies. I mean, they have absolutely have the right to pull someone down and they have, they've taken people off their platforms for a number of reasons. When it comes to public leaders though, sunshine is the best disinfectant we're always told and transparency is good i 'd much rather myself and, and for you know my fellow Americans see every crazy thing that Donald Trump might tweet than to see what someone at Twitter thinks I should see because right there, what Twitter has done is tried to create a an acceptable form of community on a platform that is supposed to be open to all so i I think there are there 's a lot of garbage on twitter there 's a lot of garbage on Facebook but there 's good stuff there too there 's a kind of real-time attempt at accounting and holding people in power to account that is useful and you know honestly is it the worst thing in these crazy times that we have in real time a a scrolling feed of the president's id maybe not i think it I, i would err on the side of saying they should let more be out there not less and i do think you'd run into a lot of legal issues if you start trying to regulate platforms in this way, they're going to have to start calling themselves publishers. There, there are a whole lot of things. And Adam, you're, you're very versed on all of this. There's a lot that would have to change in, in, in our legal code to make that um, a consistent reality for the platforms.
0: Yuval, what do you make of this debate over the, the role of, the, of Facebook and, and Twitter in, in moderating the content?
3: Well, I largely agree with Christina. I, I think the lesson for me in just sort of stepping back and looking at that debate is that we are really early in the information age. We have no categories, no concepts for thinking about what it is that's going on on the Internet in relation to the the traditional way of thinking about how a society lives. Just as it took some real work to get to a place where we could get our arms around the nature of an industrial economy uh, in the United States and around the world in the course of the 19th century, I think we're looking now at a process where we're going to have to get our arms around just what it is to have this sort of virtual online world alongside the everyday world. How do the ways in which we try to control political extremism, how do the ways in which we try to have some idea of what knowledge is reliable in the real world, how do those relate to what happens in the internet world? I think we we now work by some pretty crude analogies where we're asking ourselves, is this more like a publisher or is this more like a bulletin board? Well, maybe it's more like one than the other, but it's not really like either of those very much. And over time, we're going to have to think about what kind of approach we actually ought to have as a self-governing society to this arena of social and cultural and communal life. And I think we're not all that close to having it. So I'd be wary of imposing strict regulation on the internet now, because I think we're not ready for it. We don't know what it needs to look like. But I wouldn't say in principle that there should never be any regulatory approach to what these companies do. They do have enormous social power, enormous economic and cultural power. And it makes some sense as a self-governing country to think about what what kind of Role the public ought to have in that space. I just don't think we have the answer. We're only beginning to ask the question.
0: Let's maybe end on this question. Then, as we mentioned a few times, this is being recorded in the immediate aftermath of the George Floyd incident, but also the, it's in the ongoing situation with COVID nineteen. Months after social distancing began, it hasn't quite ended yet, but we've been through quite an experience the last two months in our work lives, our personal lives, and so on. So what? Do you think those experiences the last few months on COVID-19 and now the, the the protests after the death of George Floyd, what do you think that has taught us, if anything, about these issues in the report, the issues we've been discussing about community institution and platform?
1: My general view is that we're as soon as this is over the, the pandemic and the lockdown, we're going to rush back to be with each other as quickly as possible. And as soon as we can go to rock concerts, we're going to do that. But I find, just speaking personally, I used to have the idea of going on an airplane for a meeting was a low barrier for me. That was like a low wall. Okay, I'll get on an airplane. Now the thought of getting on an airplane is a horrific thought. (laughs) Like, I never want to go on an airplane again. And so it it has sharpened the distinction between the transactional relationships I have and the real relationships I have. And the final thing to be said in this, I'll end on a pro-technology note. If you look at pandemics in the past, it really decimated social structures and social mores. The fact that we could zoom each other was a I think a, just an enormous positive in how we could were able to get through this without coming part of a society.
2: I agree with that about the zoom actually, especially because it also allowed small communities of friends to still see each other's faces and interact and check in with each other in a way, even though you know we of course then saw the think pieces. Six, six weeks later about Zoom fatigue, but I, I think it's been an overall good for people. Uh, the, the cautionary note I would sound uh, about these platforms and about the recent demonstrations and, and certainly during the pandemic, is that the promise of these platforms is to give us access to truth and reality in real time, right? Because people will post a picture and say, this is happening right now, right here. That's been extremely powerful for, for certainly for uh, causes related to justice and, and Certainly in the case of George Floyd, those images of that officer with his knee on that man's neck is what galvanized so many people. It's what started an important conversation. My cautionary note is that the promise of of that, particularly for social media platforms, comes with a cost, which is a lack of nuance, a lack of context, an immediate ability to manipulate that I think we're not yet recognizing firmly enough. And what we see is that the immediate reaction, the engagement that happens immediately is often followed by another wave of more detailed information, context, correction, and rarely does that second wave receive the kind of thoughtful attention that the first image or the first snippet of video got. So I think as we, as we come to terms with what we're seeing and what we're hearing, um, more skepticism and patience, and I think this is something actually that I found really useful in the Oxford report, they talk about having a pause between when you think something and when you say it, right? Having some time of contemplation, and this should, this should warm the heart of every conservative, right? Prudence, contemplation, a little bit of humility. The pace of these platforms works against that, and that can be a social good, but I think we also need to be aware of some of the potential dangers. Yvonne, what What have we learned from the last
0: couple of months?
3: Well, you know, as they say about the French Revolution, it's too soon to say. But I certainly think David's point is a very important one, which is we're, we're learning to tell the difference between different kinds of face-to-face interaction. And I do think there are some things that we're not really going to go back to doing. I mean, that that kind of guilty sense of relief that so many people in white-collar America felt when we just took everything off our schedule for the entire spring and summer Is going to be, it's going to have lasting effects. But at the same time, the intensity with which my children miss going to baseball games is teaching me something too. Those things were never about watching a baseball game, which we could still do. They were about a a, a human experience of community and sociality that we cannot do without. And I think we're going to probably be a little bit better at telling the difference between those things, between the things we do together because they are just powerful experiences of community and the things we do together because we just need to talk for a minute.
0: Well, you've all Christine, David, thank you so much for for taking the time to read the report and to uh, join in this conversation. I, I've enjoyed it immensely. As I mentioned at the outset, this is the second in a series of discussions. The next one with another group of friends will be a discussion of the report's chapter on algorithmic and democratic decision making. So I hope our listeners will join us again next time. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe
3: and leave a review. We'll see you next week.